From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Construction at Denver International Airport is over budget and behind schedule. How did it spiral and who's to blame? Then, in Colorado Wonders, is an old summer camp story true? Did a Colorado town really start because of a fake gold rush? The details are are very scrambled, but you know, that's what happens when you go to camp. (laughs) I'm pretty amazed that they even talked about the history of Allens Park at camp. Plus, Olathe corn is so sweet and tender that it has to be picked by hand. But growers are struggling to find enough workers. And a Colorado pot grower looks to shrink his carbon footprint. We kind of had to customize genetics to work for up here. The challenges he faces and what it says about the industry. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. If you've traveled through DIA recently, you've felt the impact of the airport's massive remodel. Large sections of the Great Hall under the iconic white tents are closed off to travelers for construction. But here's the even bigger problem. The project is mired in delays and cost overruns, and now it appears the city may be working toward canceling the contract in the middle of construction. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus has been following the project and joins us now. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. Ben, can you first explain what exactly this construction is for? Right. So when you get to DIA and you get past ticketing and you look down, you see those massive security lines in the Great Hall. It was never intended to be like that. The Great Hall was not designed to be a giant security room. Um, That's a post 9-11 security measure. All these new lines were created and tighter security measures. And so what they basically want to do with this construction is get those security lines off the Great Hall main floor, push them closer to the ticketing areas so that when you get past security, you're in the Great Hall and you can mill about, you can shop at the shops that will be there. Uh, It'll look cool. The artist renderings are really neat when you see it all opened up. And that was the intent, the original design so that you can hang out under those iconic white tents. And the idea is that people will spend more money and the airport will get more revenue if people hang out in that great hall before they go to their gates. That all makes sense, but this was a controversial project from the start, right? Yeah, this is a 34-year contract. Uh, So not your typical construction contract. It's a public-private partnership deal, and some city council members balked at the cost. Uh, $650 million just for the uh, interior remodel. Uh, They balked at the complexity of the contract. I got a copy of it. It's in two giant baker boxes, so it's a huge contract. And that it's this 34-year deal. So the contractor finances a little bit of the construction up front. They get a portion of the revenues from the shops and restaurants um, beyond that. And so airlines also warned about this deal because airlines pay fees to the airport. That's a big source of the airport's revenue. And they're worried that if their airport's spending too much money, those fees get pushed onto airlines. Those airlines have to charge customers more money. It has all kinds of compound effects. So there are all these concerns, but right now the problems with the project, they aren't theoretical. What's happening right now? So if you believe the contractor, they say that the the project is 300 plus million dollars over budget. That's a $650 million project, so that's a lot. Uh, they say that it's probably three years behind schedule. So if it's inconvenient to you, you can expect three additional years. Um, now that's according to the contractor. The city disputes those numbers. But how have the delays and the costs spiraled so quickly? Construction's only been going on for about a year now. 
Yeah, so the contractor got in and they looked at the concrete that was originally poured in that great hall and they found that it was weak in some sections um, and that caused safety concerns, obviously. And so they were delayed. The city hired a third-party contractor to look at that concrete. The city says the concrete is fine. And they can build on it. Um, I wish we knew more. We've asked Kim Day, the CEO of uh, Denver International Airport, to be on Colorado Matters, but she's declined. Uh, what we know is based on documents we've been able to get from the city. Um, the contractor is also saying that it's not just about this concrete. It's also design changes the airport and the city are making to the original design, which is causing delays. Um, so it sounds like there's this battle between the city, which owns the airport, and the contractors that's really heating up. Yeah, it's getting nasty. Uh, looking at the letters that are going back and forth between the city and the contractor, um, it does not look like a good relationship at all. Um, they're both basically pointing fingers at each other uh, for why there are problems out there. They're arguing about everything from the type of tile material that they're using in some parts Um what safety considerations the contractor is doing out there. The city, the airport hired an auditor to come look at safety and found deficiencies. And it looks like the city is um, attempting to start the process of canceling the contract. And it's hard to tell if this is a negotiating ploy because um, to put some pressure on the contractor or if they're actually going to go through with the process of canceling this contract in the middle of a very complex construction project. Uh, I'm told that that would be the nuclear option uh, to do that, but they are setting that up um, from a paperwork standpoint. And the contractor all along in this paperwork is like, we're not breaching anything, we're doing everything correct. So it really is kind of he said, she said right now. So what now? So the contractor and the city are in negotiations right now about the cost overruns and the delays at the airport. The city seems confident that it is not $300 million over budget, that it is not three years behind schedule, but we'll see. Uh, we don't know much right now. Um, and I just want to reiterate that the airport is owned by the city, but it is not taxpayer funded. So the airlines and parking revenue, that's what um, that's the revenue that goes into the airport. Still, it is important to the entire state of Colorado because the airport is the number one economic driver in Colorado. So the proper functioning of this airport is important to everyone. Ben, thanks for being here. Thank you. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus updating us on the cost overruns and construction delays with the Great Hall Remodeling Project at Denver International Airport. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. And I'm Ryan Warner. Ghost stories are a tradition at many summer camps, but not when Emma Fleming of Fort Collins was a counselor. <laughs> I am such a sensitive soul. I cannot handle ghost stories. <laughs> so I don't tell ghost stories because I don't want to deal with children crying in the middle of the night. So I try to make it not too scary, but still interesting. <laughs> Fleming used to be a counselor at a girls' camp, Meadow Mountain Ranch. It's a beautiful property that backs up right onto Rocky Mountain National Park land. You can hike right out of camp into the park. It's also near the small Boulder County town of Allen's Park, population about 500. So in lieu of ghost stories, counselors tried to captivate kids with tales of Allen's Park's founding. The way it was told to me is that Mr. Allen had a construction company, and 
in order to promote his business, he laced the creek with gold flakes and started a gold rush in the area. And then, like many small towns in the mountains, actually, they discovered that there wasn't as much gold there as they had thought. So the gold rush died there, but the town that was created as a result of his uh, capitalist hijinks, I suppose, survived. And that is Allen's Park today. Fleming reached out through Colorado Wonders, wondering if this story was true. Does Allen's Park, Colorado owe its existence to a fake gold rush? Okay, Emma, we're going to figure this out. All right. Thanks for taking the time to track down this story. (laughs) Those who know Allen's Park, which is a short drive from Lyons, will tell you to check out the Meadow Mountain Cafe for food. It was hopping the day I visited. And for drinks, you won't get a bar recommendation. We are at Crystal Springs. It's a little building where the water comes out. You can stop here and for free get water and enjoy some of Allen's Park's delicious reason for being. Cyclists stop at the pump station to fill their water bottles. We're beside Willow Creek, which is, if we're to believe the camp story, where gold flakes were planted. The voice you just heard belongs to Edie DeWeese. If anyone can verify this story of a fake gold rush, she can. My family came here in 1904 and spent summers ever after starting with my great-grandparents and all the way down to now my niece and nephew. And you're an amateur, or maybe even more serious than that, historian. I think that I'm amateur in the rest of the world, but in Allen's Park, hey, I'm it. Why do you live in Allen's Park? I mean, it's gorgeous, let me just say, this verdant and sometimes wind-whipped high mountain valley. The reason I live here is because my great-grandparents came here, and we were all too lazy to ever go anywhere else. But also, I love it, and it's home. Deweese writes for the Allens Park Wind. Yes, this small town has a newspaper. I love that the Allens Park Wind describes itself as a journal of the life and times of Allens Park, Ferns Cliff, Longs Peak Area, Meeker Park, Peaceful Valley, Raymond, and Riverside, Colorado. Yeah, have you heard of any of those places before? You know, it's mostly Allens Park, but we really do stretch out a little bit. What do you make of this story that a creek here was laced with gold flakes? in hopes of attracting prospectors and investors? Well, I think that somebody got all their stories mixed up (laughs) because there was gold that was planted to attract investors, but it was not in a creek. It would have washed away in a creek. But what they did is they put gold flakes into like a buckshot cartridge, and they would shoot the shotgun into the mine, and then these little streaks of gold would be deposited along the stones. So it looked like there were gold veins in the stones. And then people would come in and they would go, oh, look, look at the gold. It's right here on the surface. This is going to be a good bet. We'll make lots of money. So the fundamental idea that gold was planted in Allen's Park Mm -hmm. is true. The details perhaps are a little off. (laughs) The details are are very scrambled, but you know, that's what happens when you go to camp. (laughs) I'm pretty amazed that they even talked about the history of Allen's Park at camp. Another scramble in the camp's version is that Allen's Park's namesake, rancher and homesteader Alonzo Allen, is to blame. Yes, he'd hoped to find his fortune, he was a prospector too, but this ruse came later, 
when John Bishop and William McAllister decided to plant gold and then show investors around. When they came up on their tour, they were really duded up. They had beautiful clothing on and they were in a fancy wagon with a horse and they came up to inspect the mines so they could find out that they were really investing in something worthwhile. But that meant there would have been a mine to plant the gold in. What mine was that? Well, okay, there really wasn't a mine at that point. There were prospecting holes that Alonzo Allen had dug during the Civil War. But what the guys in 1900 did was they got a crew together and they dug a couple of holes and then they laced them with gold. These mines, or holes in the ground, had names like the Clarabelle and the Cashier Load. And to make the deal even more irresistible, these crooked men convinced investors they had a new, more efficient way to extract gold. Technology supposedly invented by a third man, C.L. Tripp. I'm not sure exactly what it did, but supposedly it magically got more ore out of the minerals than anything else could. I've looked at old newspaper articles about it, and... He had a lot of claims, but there was never any follow-up on, oh, yes, we all bought the the trip machine, and it's been wonderful. (laughs) No one has said that. Nor were there any real consequences for swindling investors, says DeWeese, that she can find. But Allen's Park stayed on the map, not because of gold, but because of tourism, a front-range respite with crystal-clear water. I asked Edie DeWeese how she feels about living in a place where scoundrels seem to have made as big a mark as anyone. (laughs) A couple of years ago, I did a talk that was called Heroes, Cranks, and Wild Wild Women. And it was about just those things, the people who were in those different categories. And interestingly, a lot of the people crossed over. You know, some days they were a hero and some days they were a crank. I think that a place like this that's far away from town kind of self-selects for unusual people. That is Edie DeWeese, one of the unusuals in Allen's Park, answering a Colorado Wonders question. Indeed, a fake gold rush is part of her town's past. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. You might have seen a sign on a veggie bin in your supermarket recently. If you've had Olathe corn before, you probably reached in and grabbed some. Olathe's namesake crop is, by design, sweeter and more tender than you're likely to find almost anywhere else. Turns out, though, the story and the future of Olathe corn is more complicated than it might seem. Let's lend an ear to reporter Nancy Lofholm, who recently visited the little town on the western slope and wrote about it for the Colorado Sun. Nancy, welcome. Thank you. Lend an ear. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into corn, let's talk about an interesting man at the heart of Olathe corn. His name is David Galena, and otherwise known as the Corn King. Yes, David Galenet is the person responsible for Olathe corn existing. Um, he came to Olathe back in the 1970s. And he's a corn geneticist, and they did call him the Corn King. And he had grown up, his father was um, one of the premier corn geneticists in the world and also a corn historian. So David had grown up surrounded by corn. His father had developed like a square ear of corn that wouldn't roll around on your plate and a a two-foot-long ear of corn. Um, So David was just totally steeped in corn, and he decided that he wanted to make um, the sweetest and most tender corn he could. And why does somebody become a corn geneticist? 
That's a good question you'd have to ask David. Um, I think, you know, because it was it was in his genes, basically, um, to go into to a business where he would develop, you know, and manipulate corn genes. And David Gallinet's contribution was to create a high sugar corn with very tender kernels. We mentioned how tender those kernels of corn are, but it creates some difficulties for the farmer. And can you tell me about that? Yes, this corn is so tender. Um, the skin on each on each kernel is so tender that it has to be picked by hand. You can't pick it by machine or it would damage the corn. So um, a lot of, of farmers are having trouble getting workers, but particularly in the the corn industry around Olathe, they've they've had trouble in recent years. Um, they bring in workers on H-2A visas, and those are really complicated because the, the farmers have to know months ahead how many workers they're going to need and when they're going to need them. And Mother Nature doesn't always, you know, comply with, with their plans. So it's tough to get the workers here, and it's expensive. They have to pay for transporting them here from Mexico. They have to... Um, pay to house them. Um, they have to pay their visa costs. So it's it's a it's a tough thing. And now there's also demand from other like hemp. Um, some of the workers are going to harvest other crops. So there's there are fewer workers for corn. And you mentioned Mother Nature. How is the season timing out this year? The season is two weeks late this year um, because it was a cool wet spring. So uh, corn is, is two weeks behind. So like you said, many far- many workers coming in on H-2A visas, they're coming from Mexico. How are current immigration policies affecting those workers? Well, I don't know that current policies are having such an effect. It's been, the H-2A visas have been really complicated for, for years. Um, so I don't know that that's had any effect this year. I think it's just the demand from other crops, um, and like I said, the difficulty figuring out when, exactly when you're going to need those workers. You've reported that some of the folks who live in Olathe a long time, they're not comfortable with all the immigrants coming in. Tell me about those tensions. Well, Olathe has changed a lot. It's a small town of um, 1,800 people, and um, since the late 70s, early 80s, since, since corn has really become the primary crop around there, um, the town is now 58% Latino. And it almost feels when you walk around Olathe, there are like five on the little main street, which is basically a block and a half long, there are five um, Hispanic-owned businesses. And you walk down the street and you hear a lot of Spanish spoken. It almost, it reminds me a little bit of, of some little farm and ranch towns I've been in in Mexico. Um, it's, just, it's just got that feel. And some people are uncomfortable with that. Time to bring in another key player to Olathe's corn industry. His name is John Harold. What role does he play? John Harold really is um, the man responsible for Olathe's sweet corn uh, becoming the the major crop that it is, and now being sold in thirty states, you know, around the nation. He um, recognized that David Gallinat had really had something with this super sweet and tender corn, so he decided that corn, this sweet corn, would be the crop to replace sugar beets and barley because they were really tanking then. And the farmers around Olathe were 
uh, struggling to, to stay in business. So he started um, the Olathe sweet, sweet corn industry. He, in, in fact, he, um, his, the name of his company, I have to say, it's ironic. It's called Tuxedo Sweet Corn. <laughs> and I say ironic because John Harold is never seen out of overalls, whether he's out in the middle of a cornfield or if he's meeting with the governor, whatever, he, he's always in overalls. So he names his company Tuxedo Sweet Corn, and he really kicks off the whole sweet corn movement around Olathe back in 1987. So we have John Harold as the corn marketer and David Gallinet as the corn geneticist. But we also have this struggle to find enough workers. So let's go back to a minute for this idea of having to handpick corn. Is there any hope that they could develop some way of picking it by machine without damaging it because it is so tender? Well, I can tell you that uh, David Gallinet and John Harold do not have that hope. <laughs> they, they think that this kind of corn has to be picked by hand. But there's a marketing force nationally. Um, some of the big seed companies are trying to develop corn that uh, will have a little bit tougher skin. And so it won't have to be picked by hand. Uh, but John Harold, David Gallinant say, no, we're, we're going to stick to the hand picking because that's the only way to keep the corn, you know, that tender and that sweet and keep the name Olathe Sweet Sweet Corn um, Keep it popular around the country. Sales of Olathe corn, though, have been down recently. And why is that? Well, that's an interesting thing because um, we think out here on the Western Slope, you know, this is our local corn. But I guess the buy local movement nationally um, has affected the sale of corn. It's gone down from 33 million ears to this year they're expecting to pick about 28 million ears. And John Harold told me it's because there's a demand for locally grown corn and people in, you know, Missouri or wherever don't consider Olathe their local corn. Nancy, you live on the Western Slope, and I can't let you get away without talking about another <laughs> amazing crop out there. How's the peach season going? Oh, the peach season is great. They're, they have a bounty crop this year. Um, you know, so there's just peaches, peaches everywhere. It's a, it's a great year for peaches. And right now is when the best uh, varieties of peaches are, are coming on. What is the best variety of peach? Ooh, I can't tell you the name. There's a lot of names. You know, there's a lot of different peaches that, that uh, <laughs> come out during the year. But um, all I can tell you is that right now when you buy peaches, you're going to get really good peaches. Thank you, Nancy. You're welcome. Nancy Laughlin is a contributor to the Colorado Sun, an online news site. She's also a freelancer for us here at Colorado Public Radio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A recent report showed that Denver's legal marijuana businesses made up nearly 4% of the city's power usage. The green crop is not so green when it comes to all the resources involved in large-scale pot growing. Anne-Maria Watt is the host of CPR's podcast, 
on something about life after legalization. The latest episode tells the story of a pot grower near Gypsum, Colorado, taking on the challenge of growing zero-waste weed. Anne-Marie joins me now. Hi, Anne-Marie. Hi. I also, I got to give props to um, environment and energy reporter uh, Grace Hood here at Colorado Public Radio. She really did a lot of the heavy lifting with this episode. Good. Were you surprised to find out how big of a difference it takes whether pot is grown indoors versus outdoors? Yeah. You know, it's funny. um, When Grace and I sat down to start doing this episode, we wanted to find a pot grower that was out there like doing everything they can to be sustainable. It was actually really hard to find one. Uh, Like we would go based on companies that had very green marketing and and then we would go to their websites expecting there to be like these beautiful pot farms out somewhere, but they were just like grow rooms with lots of lights and lots of equipment like everybody else. Um, So even just finding Rob, the guy that you hear from in the episode, was a bit of a challenge. Um, but everything we learned from Rob was pretty surprising, just the lengths that he's got to go to to cut out all the waste. Colorado and California are both legal states, but they're also states with ambitious renewable energy goals. In that light, what did you learn about the possible direction of the industry? So if you ask Rob, the guy that's featured in our episode, he will tell you that the future of the industry is growing pot outdoors. Um, And there is some evidence to support that. There's a study that we mentioned in the story about how the energy that's uh, consumed by the industry nationwide, I think, can power uh, Trenton, New Jersey, or a city of that size. And it's expected to double in the next few years. Um, So it is a big sort of problem looking for a solution. Um, Colorado and California are not the only states that have these renewable energy goals. But, you know, it's something that everybody's going to have to address sooner or later. Anne-Marie, thank you for being with us. Let's listen now to the highlights from the latest episode of On Something. You're joined by CPR's environment reporter, Grace Hood. Yep. So, Grace, you went on this little road trip to talk to a guy who is trying to grow weed sustainably and fix this problem with, you know, weed being a little greedy when it comes to energy consumption. We sent you two and a half hours west of Denver over the Continental Divide, past a little town called Gypsum. Wow, it doesn't get much more Colorado than this. We're on a gravel road. We just drove past a ranch where this rancher had like a little mini pickup and he had like, it looked like a border collie or something on the flatbed of his truck. And it's just so green right now. I mean, I'm looking at really green pastures. Oh, I love that part of Colorado. So we're looking for mile marker 11. And up there in the mountains, just after mile marker 11, you meet Rob Trotter. Yeah, there's this ranch gate with a sign that says TNT. It stands for Trotter and Trotter. Rob and his late father. Are you Rob? Yeah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. It wasn't going to rain today. Pleasure. uh, Nice pleasure to meet you, too. Absolutely. What kind of a guy is Rob Trotter? He's pretty spry. He's pretty thin, tan, kind of gray salt and pepper hair that's a little bit long and hangs under his baseball cap. So this is the home of Pot Zero. That's the name of Rob's operation. And it's also the name of a brand of weed that we can find in some dispensaries here in Colorado. And he's been growing weed for five years up there. Five years, but it's been 27 years since Rob bought this operation with his dad. 
And, you know, it's really changed. Like, there used to be just a few dilapidated structures on the property. And now he's got a home, a couple other structures, and the marijuana grow. So, okay, tell me what that marijuana grow looks like. Well, to get there, and we actually had to get on an ATV. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let one of you guys drive, too, because I drive a little crooked. <laughs> I drove, by the way. Okay, everyone... Uh... Oh my God, this is so much fun. (laughs) We drive up, it's muddy and rocky. You get to the top of the hill and you just see this fenced-in area. Pull it it down so it goes in the park? Yeah. And then turn the key off. All right. Okay, so you've arrived at the Grow after what sounds like a very fun journey. (laughs) How big is this place? It's like two acres. Um, you know, when I we got there, it looked like an empty field. There were maybe a couple of plant stalks just poking out of the field. They hadn't done any planting yet this year. Okay, so you were up there in May. That makes sense. We're up there, and the first thing I really notice is, like, all these little plants. They're seedlings, and they're sitting out on these giant tables. And behind the plants, you actually notice these small shipping containers. And that's actually where Rob starts out the plants as seedlings. These are our seedlings that we brought out for the day. I mean, there's dozens, hundreds of them. almost 10,000. And so some are bigger and some are smaller, but they're within a few weeks of each other. We kind of had to customize genetics to work for up here. So up on this mesa, Rob has kind of found like a little microclimate. It's a warm pocket of air that actually has similar temperatures and conditions to Afghanistan. Okay, that clicks, right? Because people out there probably, maybe some people out there, have smoked Afghan kush before. And, you know, a lot of weed comes from Afghanistan. <laughs> so it's weed's been growing there for centuries. Yeah. It makes total sense. We're at 8,000 feet, and we're at a very similar latitude in terms of the amount of sunlight that you're going to get at the same time of the year. And so if it works in Afghanistan in those conditions, we thought it would work here. Okay, so what is it that makes this grow sustainable? Rob is really trying to be one with the landscape. I know that might sound a little uh, wooey, but he's lived on this land for so long. He doesn't want to use pesticides. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is mostly an organic operation. And For one example, that means keeping things like aphids off of his plants. As every gardener knows, those aphids, those little bastards, are little sap-sucking bugs that can kill your plants if you don't don't get them first. They're here, and we release several hundred thousand ladybugs, and they really go after them. Get them, ladies. Uh, ladybugs, how do, how do they get here? Do they come on a shipment? Where do they come from? <laughs> Amazon Prime, two days. <laughs> you want ladybugs, you got ladybugs. So, aphids are a pest that indoor growers are probably not dealing with as much, right? Well, indoor grows, they do have some pests. It's not a completely controlled environment, but it really does not hold a candle to being outdoors. That's where you have things like voles. Voles. That sounds like a creepy crawly. They're actually these cute little tiny rodents. They can wreak havoc on Rob's weed crop. He doesn't use pesticides to kill them. He actually installed these little small underground fences. They're three feet deep around his grow perimeter. And he actually puts these owl boxes in the trees nearby. Owls build their nests there and they can take care of the voles. 
So there are owls protecting this weed. Yes. That is pretty cool. It's very Harry Potter. But no magic. He's actually using nature to fight nature. Some would argue that's magic. (laughs) (laughs) So what about the carbon footprint? We're getting there. Let me take you next to this little stone shed. It's right by the creek. It actually kind of looks like a big dog house. This is actually where Rob uses water to make power. It's a renewable energy source. We have no snow melt coming off of this mountain yet. This, this is nothing. Uh, what's going to come once the heat comes is so much water, then I can put on more nozzles and make even more power. I mean, I just want to dwell on the fact that this is the single biggest overhead for most marijuana grows. It is. Electricity. It is number one. And you are, aside from your maintenance, you are paying what, sir? Zero. Oh, okay. So I get it now. That's where he gets the name Pot Zero, right? That's exactly right. Uh So zero electricity, next to no carbon footprint. And I got to say, Rob's pretty unusual here in Colorado, not only for the fact that he grows outdoors, but also for the fact that he supplies his own electricity. What about those pot farms that I hear about in California? Those are outdoors, right? You're exactly right. So say, for example, if you went to the Emerald Triangle in Northern California, they've really been growing outdoors sustainably for decades, whether it's legal or illegal pot. So, you know, it's not unheard of to have a low carbon grow elsewhere in the country. But here's the key thing, Anne. You can't sell California pot in Colorado. Right, because the federal law. That's right. So here in this state, Rob's pretty cutting edge. What's grown here has to be sold here. So Rob's grow doesn't have much of a carbon footprint, unlike these other indoor groves in Denver. But what does he even need that electricity for, right? Isn't everything outside? It doesn't need fans and lights and such. Well, remember those little plant seedlings that I introduced you to? Um, They were sitting on the table right when we walked into Rob's grow operation. He needs hundreds of hours of super expensive grow lamps to get these seedlings going. That's not how other, for example, other outdoor grow operations in California may just use sunlight to Mm -hmm. get the plants going. But Rob uses some electricity. And if you think about how a traditional indoor grow operates, they spend tens of thousands of dollars a month uh, on getting plants to grow. Uh, And that's simply what goes into their electricity bill. So I've never seen what a hydropower plant looks like. I mean, is this is this easy? Is this something anybody can do? I don't understand all the particulars, but I will tell you this is a turbine that's spun really fast and generates electricity based on water that falls down a very specific grade or slope down a mountain hillside. So this already sounds way too hard for me. It's pretty complicated. And Rob just happened to choose a very special place, a special property that enabled him to have this very efficient and uh, power-producing plant from hydropower on his property. We've been getting to know Rob Trotter, a guy who basically eats, lives, and breathes sustainable weed. He's trying to grow it as cleanly as he can with the teeny tiniest carbon footprint. But there's something really important to know about Rob and about how he's able to do this work every day. 
And it's actually something that started decades ago, way before we found him high up here in the mountains growing sustainable weed. Do you want to take it from here, Grace? So long before Rob moved to Colorado, he lived back in Wisconsin. And he was working for the family company back there. They did packaging. And he started to notice some problems with his eyes. I was having struggle driving at night, um, seeing the lines, you know, the, the, the lights from other cars were really bothering me. And um, it became very evident that there was an issue. You know, what happened next really threatened to take over Rob's life. And it still kind of hangs over the work that he does at Pot Zero. And I had always had poor eyesight, as in very nearsighted, but not your retina diminishing. Rob actually found out that he has this rare genetic disorder. And over the decades, it's caused about 85% blindness. Wow, 85 what, what does the world look like? What, what do you see right now? I'm I, looking out in the field. We're sitting in a field. Um, I can see the hill on the other side. You know, and I can Is it all blurry? Gray, it's all blurry. I can see it's a gray hill. And, you know, Rob is such a nice guy. He still makes eye contact, even though he can only see out of his peripheral vision. So Rob is essentially blind, right? Like that's, is that why he let you drive the ATV? That's right. Ah. When he moved out to the property with his parents and his wife in the 90s, they bought this place, I think, really with like his future needs in mind, knowing right. that he had this genetic disorder. And I don't think, though, he ever really imagined that he would be running a pot growing business. Of course. Who predicts something like that? But then recreational weed does become legal in Colorado. And then what? Rob goes to Denver one day to visit one of the city's many indoor grow operations, and he starts to get interested in doing his own thing. And so we were invited into this grow, and, you know, it was lovely. They were doing a great job, no doubt about that. But it just kept pulsing through me that I had all the heat from the lights kind of in my face. And, you know, that's really where Rob saw his opportunity. Why inside? Why all this energy? And why not outside? And so that's where I got, you know, on this mission. And, and then the real question was, you know, I'm not just outside, but I'm at 8,200 feet. Will it work up there? So he gets this idea. He spends thousands of dollars on seeds, plants it all in the ground. And then, then, then like what? The first season, he planted about a dozen strains of marijuana. The plants started to grow. Things were looking good. And we were really excited because we knew we had a crop. You know, we we had buds. Um, looked promising. Looked promising. You know, harvest is a very exciting time because, you know, all of your effort is now coming back as, you know, the bounty that makes the operation run. So we have a lot of excitement, and that quickly fades to disappointment. Out of the 12 strains that Rob Trotter planted, just two panned out. They were black-eyed Katie and Camel Walk Kush. And I looked that up after I got back to my desk, and those are also names of fish songs. <laughs> if we would have not had those two strains, we'd have said, well, that didn't work. Let's close up shop. But experiment, two... Experiment over. Two did work. Two did work. And those two strains actually taught Rob a lot about what he needed to build a successful outdoor grow operation up in the mountains. He got them both from the same cannabis seed bank, one that uses careful breeding, 
not genetically modified seeds or GMOs to make plants that can really thrive at high altitudes. So I have to imagine that this guy, Rob, is a big old tree hugger. Okay, so here's the really interesting thing. The environment does matter to Rob, but he's also, I think, first in his mind, he's an entrepreneur. So he's a real go-getter. He's all about overcoming challenges, especially personal challenges. What's it like running a, a agricultural business that's very labor dependent and you have uh, your eyesight is impaired? Um, make no mistakes. People that lose their eyesight have uncanny ways of figuring things out. And it's the rewiring that happens. You know, I never knew all this until my eyesight left. But I can honestly say that there, there's a gift to it. The gift is that your imagination and your memory go way up. That helps a tremendous amount. It helps in the whole operation. You know, it's really hard for me to wrap my brain around how a guy can run a farm while he's functionally blind. Well, you know, I think it's really two things. Rob relies on the people around him to provide support of different types. But, you know, the other thing is who he is as a person. He's a really optimistic guy. Once you're stuck between that rock and a hard spot, you better figure it out quick. Once you hit the stop sign and where everybody else is saying, well, I don't know what to do next, my brain is wired to go back up, turn right, get around the stop sign one way or another. And there's always a way. I kind of have this philosophy that there's no such thing as a problem. There's just solutions waiting to happen. So... I'm going to write that and put that on my wall or my desk (laughs) cubicle. (laughs) It's a positive mindset. Okay, so let's get to this big question that I'm sure some folks are wondering. He's green, but is he making green? Is he turning a profit? It's got to cost a lot of money to grow this stuff sustainably and up in the mountains, too. Yeah, I mean, let's face it. It's it's hard. Since Rob started his grow, you know, the price of pot in Colorado has really dropped. Pot, like actual just like weed weed is so stupid cheap now. It is. And Rob's been in business for five years. He thinks he might actually break even in 2019. I mean, this year, it is such a critical point for his business. Okay, so people care about where their wine comes from. People care about where their whiskey comes from, their coffee beans. Do people care about where their weed comes from? I mean, who's buying this? Rob seems to think so. He didn't use these words, but I really liken it to artisanal weed. And I asked Rob about whether his business is going to stand the test of time. He actually answered me with this story. So I mentioned he moved out into Colorado with his parents. He actually moved out from Wisconsin. And in the early years of his pot business, Rob said his dad of Trotter and Trotter Ranch was always kind of skeptical of like what he was doing there. And then he remembers bringing his dad out to his pot fields and walking him around last September. We got a lot of dollars on the line that we've, you know, saved over our lifetime. And, and we've also used up five years of our life. Okay. And when you're doing something, it better work when you're that far invested, right? And he was worried about it. And I walked him around that plantation a few days before he died. And damn it, I didn't get a picture that was so stupid, but I didn't know he was going to. Okay. And he looked at me, and he's a smart guy, self-made, built his own thing. He looked at me and he said, you're going to make it, aren't you? And I said, yeah, we are. I said, I have no doubt in my mind 
And he could see just by what it looked like compared to the years before that we have now got something. And so he was he was all in. When did he pass? Uh, just this last fall. This yeah. last fall? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to ask, how did that feel for you? I mean, we all seek the approval of our parents, right? Felt great. That was just a great moment. And now we carry on because this thing, um, you know, it's got legs and you just, you just got to keep making it go. Rob Trotter has fought voles, aphids, all with a pretty significant visual impairment. And this year he's going to go up against his biggest challenge yet. Oh boy. The local planning board. Rob's trying to convince local bureaucrats to allow him to expand his operation from two acres to 40 acres. 40 acres for weed. Yeah. 40 acres seems like a lot. There are certainly bigger outdoor grows that can really challenge Rob Trotter. And, you know, it's all about economies of scale. Right. So Rob is really trying to scale up. I mean, there's a really big outdoor grow in Pueblo and southern Colorado. But the key thing is that Rob thinks the future of weed is outdoors, not indoors. Interestingly, indoor grows don't have scale. They're done. Because they can't... You have to build a bigger building. You build a 10,000 square foot or a 20,000 or a 100, you might think you got the monster. But when 40 acres comes online, I'm going to make it look puny. Oh, damn. Mic drop. Yeah. Boom. So Rob Trotter sounds like he's pretty confident that he's got a winning strategy here. But I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment. He may put those indoor grows out of business with his 40 acres, but how is he going to compete with huge agribusinesses that might come along with 400 acres, right? What's the plan then? Well, I think it really goes back to something we said earlier. Rob sees himself as an artisanal grower. He doesn't really see those as his main competition. So he's focused on growing a large amount of very high-quality artisanal wheat. Right, like the wine industry or all the fancy single-origin coffee I buy. He's hoping there's going to be customers who are going to pay a premium for the good stuff, right? Exactly. And, you know, we just described Rob's experiment, but I also described a large grow operation in Pueblo in southern Colorado. That's right. And they're growing a lot of weed with less electricity. And here's the really interesting thing. I think it's very much an open question in, say, 10 or 20 or 30 years when weed, say, is legal at the federal level and it can be sold across state lines. It can move across state lines. Weed grown in California can be sold in Colorado. Well, it's kind of like our food, right? Exactly. I mean, it's most times that I'm buying strawberries at the grocery store, they're They're not grown in California, right? And at that point, I think that growing weed indoors, my sense is that you can make the argument it's not financially viable. Weed may need to move outdoors at that point. So whether or not it can be grown outdoors with a zero-carbon footprint, my sense is that that's still kind of going to be a niche thing. Mm -hmm. But I think it really depends on where you are in the country. If you're in the climate where you can grow all year round, maybe you don't need lamps like what Rob uses up in the mountains to start his little seedlings. 
there's so many different variables there, but uh, ultimately we really will know more, I think, when Rob scales up to 40 acres and starts to really kick off the next phase of his business. All right. Well, we'll wait and see. Thanks, Grace, for taking a road trip for us. (laughs) Thanks. That was Colorado Public Radio reporter Grace Hood. Grace joined On Something host and Maria Wad. You can subscribe to On Something wherever you get your podcasts. And that's Colorado Matters for today. It takes a whole team to put the show together every weekday. Executive producer Carl Bielek, producers Anthony Cotton, Andrew Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Alexandra McMahon. Max Weisick Newsfellow, Taylor Allen. We've got audio engineers Michael Hughes, Shane Rumsey, and Natasha Watts. I'm Avery Lill, CPR News.